Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Welcome back to the episode number five of the Midnight Crisis Podcast. Uh, my name is Jim Whalen here at Chop Sports Family down here in Matawan, New Jersey. Alongside of me is uh, Dave Sturgio, owner and proprietor here, making me look good, making me sound good. Uh, thank you for all the people reached out, family and friends, and uh, with the Coach K interview. Uh, I thought it was a different take on it. it, came from a different different angle. I think people appreciated that. Uh, my next guest is uh, staying with the Alabama theme. He's been uh, mentioned on his podcast before uh, a few times already. He played at FDU uh, under Coach Lababo in 1974-1978. He also had coaching stops uh, in Long Beach State from 90 to 96, made the NCAA tournament there. Also 96 to 2003 in South Florida. And lastly, at uh, Virginia Tech from 03 to 2012. Uh, he is currently a ESPN analyst, probably one of the best in business. Please follow him on X. Uh, he'll mention that along the uh, in, in the episode. I'm pleased to introduce you, Seth Greenberg, coach and analyst, ESPN. Okay. Uh, coach, but th thanks. Uh, I know we spoke a couple of times in, in the past sort of past couple of years, but thank you for the opportunity. I know we talked a little bit about Alabama. I mean, I, I talked to Coach Hurley. Um, Coach K, Jay Horowitz, and uh, Hubie Brown. And uh, coming from, I, I grew up in Elizabeth. I heard about Alababo. I know you played for him, but uh, I just wanted to get your story about Alababo. I thought it was a pretty good basketball story, something different that somebody really hasn't heard. But, uh, you know, growing up on Long Island, how did you end up at, uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson? And, and, and how, how were you introduced to basketball on, on Long Island? I was introduced to basketball. My dad played at LAU for the great Claire B. And I grew up with basketball. I mean, I grew up going to uh, a park in, in the five towns, watching my dad play with all these old New York City legends. And uh, But Coach B was obviously someone that had a great impact on him. So, you know, we grew up with the game. I mean, I can't remember a time growing up I didn't have a ball in my hand and, uh, and basketball wasn't important. Uh, it got became more important, obviously, the older I got. And uh, I still have a vivid memory of Coach B coming and visiting. And this is something that really impacted me. In the summers or in the spring, he would go back around and visit his former players. Okay. And Coach B actually came to our house and visited with us. I still remember being a little kid sitting by the fireplace, <laughs> listening to Coach B tell stories to my dad. And it was, you know, something that I still have a vivid memory of and had a, a great impact on me. You know, growing up, a basketball junkie and then get involved with the five-star basketball camp, but run by Harry Garfinkel and, and Will Klein. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, that was basically that, that camp built a bridge for so many people to cross players to cross in terms of, you know, in its time before quote unquote grassroots basketball, you know, five-star was all about teaching. And it was all about competition. It was all about developing coaches and developing players so I, uh, my brother had a great, great junior year. I played in high school. He was one of the best players in Long Island. And in the, in, in, in the semifinal game in the county, he had about 40 against Southside. They ended up losing the game. And Howie Garfinkel invited him to the five-star camp. And I tagged along as a rising uh, ninth grader. And that camp basically, uh, you know, the best players, the best coaches, and then all the college coaches would come and watch you play. And, uh, I was recruited at probably a mid-major level, but fairly started recruiting me. Then I knew I wanted a coach, and I started doing my research about Coach Lababel and his his history of a great teacher and the success that he had and the people he worked for. Obviously, Coach Knight at Army, but 
the success he had as a high school coach, uh, his success he had in terms of being one of the architects of ball U-man defense. Uh, and I was enamored by it. And, uh, you know, when I got a chance to visit the school, it was a time in my life where my family was going through some difficult times. It was only about two hours from my house. Uh, the schedule we played was great, but, you know, I majored in broadcast journalism, but really my major was in basketball. And, you know, I, you know, sitting in practice, learning in practice, taking notes, listening, hearing, seeing things, how things were done, why things were done that way were all uh, a big part of my education, you know, uh, and Coach LeBabble was basically my best professor uh, because he was teaching me my trade. In a lot of ways, playing for him was like a trade school. You know, he was giving me an education that I would carry over and then use, you know, for 35 years of my life as a college coach. Did your dad kind of direct you towards like, hey, and, and you're, I guess you're interested in coaching at, at an early age. Did your dad say, hey, these are the guys you probably should target as far as learning a coach? Or is this something you just kind of came up on your no, own? Yeah, no, actually going up to the five-star camp, I mean, you're sitting there. I still remember I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm sitting there listening to U.B. Brown give a lecture. You know, then you listen yeah. to Chuck Daly give a lecture. Then it's Mike Fratell giving a lecture. And then it's Bobby Knight giving a lecture. And then it's – so I was around, you know, fortunately through five-star, I was around great teachers and great coaches, great high school coaches, great college coaches. Uh, and then when you – we went from being a player to working at five-star, that's when I really started – really just uh, falling in love with the ability, the, the idea of, of chasing my dream as a coach. And, you know, I mean, you think about the, the, the young people that came out of that five-star camp and what they're doing today. I mean, you, it's a who's and who's of college basketball in the NBA. I mean, it was Brendan Malone. It was, you know, Mike Fratello. It was UB Brown. It was Rick Pitino. It was John Calipari. It was my brother. It was, you know, it was an incredible list of coaches uh, that went through that camp. And, you know, I always say Garth built us a bridge to cross to chase our dreams. And the exposure we got at Five Star, uh, teaching a station, doing individual instruction, uh, giving lectures, living it at a very young age. And that's what you did. I mean, like we started the summer, my brother and I, Brad, we started the summer and we'd be gone for 12 straight weeks. And you know, it would be Honesdale five-star, then four weeks in Pittsburgh or Wheeling, then back to Honesdale. In between, it was Ohio University. It was Polk Invitational. It was – so, I mean, that's that's that was our education. And, uh, you know, you fell in love with the game. You got lost in the game. You got lost in learning how to teach the game. Uh, but Coach Lowe was all part of that. Uh, the idea of – you know, I was interested in Penn State some. John Bach was a great coach there, but – Fairly was closer, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, he had an assistant named Mike Wren, who was a younger guy that also was chasing his dream as a coach. I could see myself a little bit in him. Uh, but, you know, like Coach Lowe was a tough guy. He was a hard guy to play for. Yeah. But he was a great teacher. He was an incredible, incredible teacher. Uh, there was no detail too small. His ability to communicate, his ability to teach in a way that uh, there was progression uh, he had a brilliant, brilliant basketball mind. And, I, you know, even today, I mean, I still remember uh, my senior year of college, uh, he calls me up into his office. When you had to get called up into the old man's office, it was never a good thing usually. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, you rolling up in there, oh, my goodness, oh, shit, he's going to rip my ass. And uh, 
he sat me down. He just said, you know what? He said, you, you know, a year from now, you're going to chase your dream and, and want to coach. And, you know, when you're a head coach, he said, you're going to look back and say, the old man wasn't that crazy. <laughs> and because the things we're doing every day, you'll realize you'll be doing those, uh, many of those things every single day. Yeah. Uh, you might put your own twist on it, but you'll be doing those things every single day. And, and sure enough, I was doing them pretty much every single day from when I was a JV coach at Columbia to playing coaching in the ACC against Coach K. Yeah, you, know, you did it almost uh, you know four decades, you know, on uh, coaching. But you talked a little bit about Rick Pitino. Uh, when Rick Pitino got the job at St. John's and you worked for ESPN, he, he had he had a couple minutes with one of the anchors there, and he mentioned you and your brother Brad, and he, he said that you he remembers playing with you. On, on the basketball court, I thought I was pretty good. Did you know that one, what kind of a player was Patino and, and that he was also going to have that same path? Like it seemed like that five. Yeah, he was, was the seven. first one. He was the yeah. first one, Jim. He was, the, he was the first one of our, and he's a little bit older than me, closer to my brother's age. We used to play at a place called Prospect Park uh, when we were kids where like it was a great, it was a great park, terrific games every single night of the summer, competitive, Again, before all this grassroots stuff, you know, kind of took over the summer basketball. But uh, Rick was the first one of the five-star, young five-star guys that, you know, broke through, uh, you know. And Rick was, was actually a better player after college than he was in college. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, as a clinician, as a teacher, as a coach, as a motivator, uh, his, his, his Station 13, which was individual workouts, were legendary. But yeah, you know, Rick was a really good player, but he was a great teacher, and you could see that in in, in Rick Pitino. You could see his ability uh, and his passion for the game. Uh, but you know what we didn't see back then was his innovation. You know, like Rick approached coaching like a five star station, but we didn't see the use of the three point shot. We didn't see the press. We didn't see the matchup zone. We didn't see any of those things. Yes, but we saw was a guy that was incredibly passionate, was a terrific communicator and teacher, loved the game, loved to be in the gym, loved to teach, uh, fiercely competitive. Uh, but he was a better player actually after he graduated than when he was a college player, and and he was such an innovative coach, and he feared nothing. You know, he feared nothing, and you know, and Rick's success begat. All the rest of us, you know, whether it's Cal and myself or, you know, all the rest of us that followed in the footsteps of, of five stars. Some went on to the NBA. Tony Fantino was a former high school coach at Mount Vernon. You know, Brendan Malone was uh, head coach at Rhode Island. Uh, you know, there were so many. Ronnie Rothstein was a, a high school coach at Eastchester High School. I mean, and, you know, so, so many guys went on from that camp that I always say that, like, what Howie Garfinkel and Will Klein were able to do is they they created the greatest teaching camp in the history of basketball with the greatest amount of accountability that developed both players and coaches and held us all to the same standard. And a lot of kids went through those camps, but like with, with Garfinkel, like when did he start it? And like, what was his background to get the, like to feel like that there was actually a market for this that, you know, that co coach, like coaches and kids and everything else, like 
when did he start it? And when do you, when do you think that, that like, yeah, I mean, like yeah, Garth Gar coached AAU teams in New York city and citywide and, and, and Elmcore and all those other things. And he was kind of a, you know, he was kind of a scout. Uh, you know, he ran a scouting service called HSBI high school basketball illustrated uh, that begat Will Klein was a, a principal at Columbus high school. Uh, they were a perfect match because Will was buttoned down and took care of all the logistical things. And Garf, because of his passion for the game, uh, you know, he always said he had a great eye for guards. He also had a great eye for guys that fell in love with the game. They came up with this this camp. Well, it was in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. It was, you know, those camps back then, camps ran like it's for an eight-week period. So they ran one week the week before the camps opened up and one week after the camps before they closed up. And uh, it started with just busing kids from New York. Everyone paid busing kids from New York that wanted to work on their games. And, uh, you know, he had connections with the high school coaches because it was, you know, whether it was Coach Quigley's or, you know, the Talentine coach of Bob Austin or whether it was Bob Wade at Dunbar High School or it was coaches in the Midwest. He developed all these relationships. Guys would come to camp. They would work camp. I mean, you know, whether it was Jerry Wainwright who, at one point, you know, obviously was coaching at DePaul and Richmond and UNC Wilmington. He, he was an assistant coach at Wake Forest. Uh, but Dave Odom started as a high school coach and sure. going to Wake Forest. That he would bring kids from North Carolina when it was at, at, at uh, Wheeling College. Okay. So uh, Garf just, he created this network where all these great players, and then it became the place to be. I mean, like when I was a camper at Five Star, Moses Malone was in my bunk. Wow. I mean, you know, it's Mark Aguirre, it's it's Michael Jordan. I still remember Dave Odom coming to me and saying, "This guy at camp here, he's unbelievable, and no one knows who he is." I go, "Come on, Dave. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we we've seen them all come through here. You know, you guys, we've seen great players come." He goes, "You know, we've seen you, and we've seen this guy, we've seen that guy." He goes, "He's unbelievable." Well, that year, the best player in high school basketball named Joe Ward, jumping Joe Ward, he was out of Georgia. I don't get a chance to see Jordan that first day because I'm a commissioner of another conference. So the next the next day when the game started, it was Joe Ward and Michael Jordan just happened to be on court three, which was the main court in Pittsburgh. And Jordan had like 40 in like two and a half quarters. And he was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but if you were a good player, you wanted to go to five-star. That's yeah. just the way it was. It was, you know, it was, it was Michael Korn. If you, if you look at the history of, of the MVPs at the five-star basketball camp, it's a who's who. Uh, top 50 players in the history of the NBA. I mean, you know, Hubie Brown, he, was, he, he always sings accolades, a, a five-star. I know he told up there and everything. And when Coach Knight passed away, there was, you know, Twitter video of him running drills in, in the 70s uh, at five-star. So, so, I mean, it definitely left its impact on, on, uh, on, on the basketball community. But if you could talk a little bit about your time at Frilly Dickinson, I know you were kind of like the midstream a little bit with, Coach Lowe, they had the unfortunate accident. Did they ever get a reset after that with uh, Noki Johnson? And that, that was kind of in your area. You talk a little bit about it. Yeah, that was, that was our, our era. Uh, no, that, that was so sad. I mean, yeah, it was, uh, you know, my career, I, I was I was a pass-first point guard who basically got the ball to my roommate, a guy named Jay Jorgensen, who was a big-time scorer from from Colon uh, Colonia in the Island area. But uh, – it was, uh, we were everyone's guarantee game. You know, what would happen is we were independent, so we weren't in a conference. So we, you know, it was really hard for us to get games. Uh, so we'd go on the road and we'd play homecoming games, basically. We, you know, we played Wake Forest, we went out to Utah, we'd play, 
you know, in Florida, we put, we played all, we, we, we played, I remember we played, we went to, we went to Marshall. We played an incredible, incredible non-conference schedule because everything was non-conference. Then we played obviously the local schools, Iotas and, and back, and back at that time, uh, Montclair State and St. Pete and, you know, got invited to Rutgers tournament one year. But, uh, you know, we, we were, uh, we, we were a hard nosed, tough group of guys that played really, really hard. The, the class before me, Lee Shulman was probably one of the best players in the, or maybe the best player in the history of the school. He was from Rasmuth Hall high school. He, he, he was just a phenomenal, phenomenal player, but we didn't win a ton of games. You know, we just hovered around that 500 mark, but it was, it was a great experience. And, you know, unfortunately, the incident you're talking about is we come back. I think we were coming back from playing Iota. Uh, we would we would bus out of Rutherford. We lived in Teaneck, so we got back from the game. Our cars were in in Rutherford, and we had to drive back for 17 to 80 to get back to campus. And so you know we had like four guys drive. You know you wanted to drive because you got like five bucks gas money. It was, and on the way back, uh, it was a a cold winter night. We're a little sleet nice and uh, on the drive back Noki's car hit a nice path slid into a a, a telephone pole uh, and unfortunately we lost him two other players George Lighty and and our man duck uh, were injured but they were fortunate they they survived the accident but it was a brutal brutal time uh, you know, it was really hard. You know, you think about you're 19, 20 years old. You know, one day you're competing and playing the game. You're in practice. You're laughing. You're giggling. You're a college student. Life is good. And then just like that, I just I still remember. This is before cell phones now. The phone ringing in, in our dorm, which, which was our apartment, and, like, just the emptiness of the feeling. And I, I remember going and, you know, obviously would go to the funeral, and it was just absolutely brutal and then spending time with coach and that really put set coach Lababo back I, I i was one of the few that mrs Lowe asked me to come over and just sit with him and talk to him and you know grieve with him a little bit uh you know i, I was like the guy the coach would actually he was really he knew i wanted a coach and he was hard on me yeah. <laughs> i thought my my name was son of a bitch but it was really sad. <laughs> but but we had this connection and uh i think you know i probably me more than my a lot of my teammates really appreciated him they they i understood i didn't mind being coached hard and and i understood he, he was coaching us hard because he cared and you could see that in him after that accident the, the human side and the emotion and then to turn around and when the first game we came back and played uh it was really really hard and uh Nelke was a great player i mean a really really talented player yeah, from the looks of it, he's six foot six guard. You know, from Plainfield, that's that's a that's a fertile ground for for players. So I yeah. mean, you know, so. it was a very difficult it was a very difficult time. But you know, since then, I'm I'm so proud of what Fairley's done and is doing. Tom Green had a Hall of Fame career there. Yeah, he did an absolutely incredible job. And then obviously, Tobin has done a great job. Uh, did a great job last year. Obviously, a great win against uh Purdue and you know which was unbelievable. Yeah and then I guess they ended up losing the Florida Atlantic who made the so uh, so they yeah. you know they they held their own and I think for an alum you you gotta be proud of like you, you know you stand on the shoulders that came before you. You were part of that program for for and you know brought some notoriety to it but they also their play also did a lot of their 
talking for him too. I mean, beating the number one, 16 beating the number one never happened before. And they did the play-in game and they, they lost to Merrimack. So their, their path was a little bit, uh, you know, uncharted, but you know, but what they did, you know, that, that that's, you know, that's going to go down in NCAA tournament history. So. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I've got, I've gotten, I've, I've stayed involved with the university. I've been fortunate to, to do some things. I actually hosted one of their celebrations after that, that win, uh, when they got their their chant their their rings and uh, you know I've been involved in helping them raise money and doing different events for them and I'm just really proud of what they're doing and how they're doing it. We've helped rebuild their 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 weight room. They never had a weight room at Fairleigh Dickinson. They got a weight room now. They redid their locker room, which is which is really uh, long overdue. But uh, I look, I got a great education. I met great people. Uh, Myself and my my teammates that I graduated with, Jay Jorgensen, Jeff Hunt, and Steve Salp, and those guys, we started a nonprofit called Teammates for Life. And what we do is basically raise money uh, for either our former teammates or, or former players in, from the state of New Jersey <coughs> or people that have fallen on tough times. We've helped with college educations. We've helped with, unfortunately, uh, some funerals. We've helped with uh, different projects to help you know people that are going through a tougher time. So if you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm 67 years old, obviously that's, that's 46 years that since I was at fairly Dickinson, yet we're still involved. We're tr still trying to stay connected and we're still trying to have, you know, we still, the guys that I went to school with, um, we've got a text chain that we, we, we all communicate with. I played golf with Lee Shulman at the big golf outing that fairly had this past fall so uh still connected still proud of what they're doing still appreciative of of the scholarship that i received uh you know it's fun to go back it's fun to get a chance to speak to their team and and talk to them through the prism of a former coach and also someone that walked in their shoes so i i'm, I'm really really fortunate and i'm really proud of what they're doing just then after you left fairly dickinson you, you started being assistant you bounced around i think you're in miami you're at Columbia, like you said before, but then you end up out at Long Beach. So like it had to be tough. Like I don't know if you're married at the time. It had to be tough on on your family, like bouncing around. The life of a coach has to be tough, and especially for the family, you're going from from place to place. We end up at Long Beach, and then you got your break there. We talk a little bit about about your break at Long Beach. You started as an assistant, and then uh, you end up going there, and you had a nice player who played for the Nets, Lucius Harris. So I mean, you know, you had a, that was like kind of your your coaching introduction into into the NCAA. Well, yeah, look, I, the day I graduated college, Phil Dickinson, next day I got the assistant coach job at Columbia, which was really f fortunate, working for Buddy Mahar. And had a real, we had a great team. We actually beat St. John's our first year. We had a guy named Alton Bird who's been involved with uh, the, the Nets, I guess the Long Island Nets team. Uh, he was a great player, just a great, great player. Juan Mitchell, Ricky Free played at Boys and Girls. Then we – we, we, we recruited really well. We recruited a kid in Richie Gordon, who's also from Boys and Girls High School, which is really interesting. Uh, so I went from there to University of Pittsburgh, two, year, two three years in the Big East. We went from there. We spent a year in Virginia with, working with Terry Holland, who I say changed my life. You know, he became my mentor and kind of helped guide me through my professional career. Uh, and and, and in Virginia back then, yeah, I think you had Samson. That they were. It was the year after Samson. It was the year after Samson. But we went to the Final Four, and I can't yeah. I never made a major decision in my life from 1983-84 without, you know, consulting with Coach Holland, including asking my wife to marry me. <laughs> and then we went from there to Miami. 
that's where I met my wife and that's when our journey began. And we started the program back at Miami and then we went from Miami to Long Beach State as the associate head coach with Joe Harrington, who was a great person, and a great coach. We were fortunate to have success. Joe took the Colorado job. I got the Long Beach State job and we had a really good run. We won the conference three, of, I think three out of six years and had Lucius Harris, Brian Russell, uh, James Cotton, a number of Joaquin Hawkins, all those guys played the NBA. I mean, yeah. Really good players. Uh, they built the pyramid, which was a great home court for us, packed the place, made a little bit of a risky move, went to South Florida and Tampa uh, just when they were starting to bring football back, which was not ideal for trying to rebuild a program. Had success, but not the success I would have wanted. And then ended up in Virginia Tech, where we had a really good nine-year run. Uh, Two-time mm-hmm. ACC coach of the year, one at Duke, at Carolina, at Maryland, yeah. at, you know, yeah, some I, great venues of all time. So I, 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 I've been very fortunate. And I remember, I think, beating Duke, I think it was on ESPN. You had your, your daughter was there, and she was a cheerleader, and your wife was there. I don't know if they were number one team in the country at the time. You beat them, I think you beat them at... A tech, or did you beat? I think you beat tech. Well, we beat them a couple of times. We beat four number one teams in the country all on the road. We, I think, they were like three or four that year. So I mean, uh, yeah, my my one daughter was a cheerleader, and my girls were, you know, my girls were a big part of everything yeah. we did. I mean, it's uh, really, really fortunate. They're all grown, obviously. Now, yeah. but our last wedding was this year, and uh, I'm out of the wedding business. Yeah, well, that's good. So I hope you got some grandkids. To- we got three visit. grandkids and one more on the way. Another All right. Well, uh, God, well, God bless you. But just talk a little bit about state of the game now, like with the transfer portal and, uh, you know, uh, NIL. And that that's the, just talk about the state of the game. You think it's good for the game? It's bad for the game? You know, what, what's your what's your opinions on that? I mean, it is what it is. Like mm-hmm. you, either you adjust or you get out. It's real simple. I mean, like it's not going back. Uh, we got to get we got to get to transfer Portland and NIL under control. The only way you get it under control is having contracts. If you have two year contracts, that'll get the portal under control. Uh, the NIL has got to be some guide rails uh, to some extent because uh, the way it is right now, it's not NIL. We call it NIL. It's not NIL. It's pay for play. Mm-hmm. Let's call it what it is. You know, uh, players are commodities, and, and players and universities are taking collectives and, and paying them. So the sooner we get that under control, the better off we are, whether it's contracts or finding another way to do it, whether it's revenue sharing to some extent. But uh, you know, I think there are ways for the collectives to raise money, like play, play, play two games in the, in, at the end of the summer. Those are what I call collective games. Play your two exhibition games at the start of the season. Get, let an outside group promote it. Those are collective games. You've got to find different revenue streams. And that's why we're seeing all this realignment, because – all these conferences and all these universities are trying to find as much money as they can so that they can stay and compete. You know, they used to, you know, universities used to put, invest in facilities. Facilities, you know what? Now they're just investing in acquiring talent. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. The sad thing to me is that in the end, it, you know, do the players deserve something? Yeah. Well, it depends on where you are. Like, you know, you think Fairleigh Dickinson needs to be paying players? They're not making any money. Yeah. You know, you think the Max needs to be paying players? They're not making any money. Well, that's the other thing too. It's just like our, I think before, like the three-point shot, like the bigs. The, you, you said the this it was revolved around the center. Three-point shot kind of opened the game, and it kind of was an equalizer. Now you think we're going back to um, where 
the bigger schools are going to have the upper advantage. It's going to be hard for get the, get the town or. Well, they say that. they've always had advantage. Hmm. I mean, like I mean, even within our conference, I'm at Virginia Tech. We weren't beating Duke for players. You know, we weren't beat. Hmm. We weren't beating North Carolina for players. I mean, you know, like you can't you can't legislate a level playing field. You just can't. Uh, but what we can do is we could first of all we got to bring education back into the equation. So if we do do contract, there's got to be an academic incentive. Because in the end, you know, when the ball stops bouncing, yeah, some guy, you know, what what percentage of guys are playing the NBA? What percentage of guys are going overseas? Uh, you know, we talk about all this money that the kids are making from these collectives. It's great. So you make four hundred thousand a year for two years. So that's probably about three hundred twenty thousand dollars. You know, you buy a car, you do something for your family, whatever it is. And four hundred's a lot. But then you got to live live the rest of your life. So you got to get education about this equation. What I'd like to see schools do, as much as the collectives, create a mentor program. So every kid that comes in has a mentor, someone that's going to stand beside them and let them navigate this thing called life. Someone that's going to help them grow, develop, mature, and build a bridge for them to cross so that when they're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, all right, they have someone to go to and turn to to help advise them and open up doors for them to be successful. I understand the financial stuff, and, and I think that's that's fine. But we've got to, we've got to also bring education back into the conversation. We've got to bring mentorship back into the conversation. We've got to make sure that in these parents and the, the players are they're so fixated on the collectives in NIL, which is not NIL; it's pay for play, that they're losing sight of the thing that lasts them a lifetime, and that's their education. You know, we used to you bring a kid on campus. You know, they meet they meet the, the dean of the, the of the of the program that they're interested in. They meet the academic council. They meet the president. That's not happening anymore. All they want to know is how much am I going to make? And you know what? We're losing track of the reason why you're going to end up in college. Yeah, you want to play. You want to have a chance to play professionally. You want to build a name you want to you know build your brand and all that stuff but you also have to work what's going to happen 10 20 years down the line because you know this is not like that you know this too too many times these young people look at college basketball and say well you know you're a pro and you're a pro and you're going to be a lottery pick and you're going to be this is not oprah handing out tvs <laughs> all right all right that's the most exclusive club in the world the nba all right and everyone goes oh, i'll just go to europe yeah in europe the kid that's making $300,000 maybe in the ACC next year, they go to Europe, unless they're special, 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 they're starting at seventy grand. And if, they, if they're good, they play their way up. If they're not good, they get sent home. So, like, it's unrealistic what is, is going on. We've got to bring education back into this equation. So that these kids are, you know, we talk about mental health. I'll tell you what mental health is. A guy plays college basketball and gets taken away from them because they're not good enough. All right. Then they got to go overseas and they're not good enough. And then they're coming back to the States without a degree because all they concern themselves back, it was their collective money or their NIL money or their pay for play money. And then they got to start their life all over again. All right. To me, that's real mental health issue. Yeah, and also how, how you solve that is having a mentorship program and then and and education.
Yeah, and, and I think you hit nail on the head. I think mental health. I mean, a lot of these kids come in with with a high expectation. Every tell them they're great, and all of a sudden they fail. A lot of them don't have the adversity or support staff really uh, around them to to help them through those hard times. It's just uh, you know, you, you know, as much as how many people go to NBA, there's probably ten times as many that that uh, you know fell on hard times for for whatever it's wandering opportunity. How, how about a thousand times? Yeah, so. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Yeah, so we've got we've got to fight it, but but look, it's not changing. You've got to deal with it. Uh, you know, as a coach, if you're at mid major school, you treat it like a junior college. Have the guys for two years, help develop them, and then help them get where they maybe they'd want to go. Um, but make sure that, that that academic component is in place. Don't be afraid to coach your team. I think that's a big thing. These coaches are all worried about coaching the team because they're worried about guys leaving. Look, if those guys are going to leave because you coached them hard. They weren't going to help you win anyway. So coach your team, set a standard, have core beliefs, have non-negotiables, uh, demand excellence. You know, we're going to play hard. We're going to play together. We're going to take good shots. We're going to compete on the defensive end. We're going to be good teammates. Uh, all the things that, you know, in life you're going to need to be. Embracing a role, being a good teammate, working with others. You know, when you say, wow, if I coach him hard, he might transfer. Well, if he's going to transfer, he's going to transfer. But try to help him get somewhere he can't get himself. That's the job of a coach. Yeah. And then a little bit, uh, 2012, you ended up getting the job at ESPN. How, how did that come about? Was this all that time? You know, in life, timing is everything. Was it just the right time for you, like, to leave? Well, I got fired. It? You got fired? <laughs> I mean, well, I, got, well, I guess, I uh, yeah, I, I guess the decision with, was made for you, so. <laughs> yeah, I had a run with my ID, and uh, we had a difference of opinion. Uh, we had tremendous success. I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish. But, uh, you know, I had three daughters and uh, one that was going to be senior in high school. And I was a young guy and uh, they let me go after the hiring cycle, which is a story in itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did some work for ESPN actually that spring on the NCAA tournament. And uh, the people there, uh, you know, John Wildhack and Lee Fitting and Harvey Williamson. And, uh, you know, when I got let go, uh, I never had a coaching agent, but I did have a media agent. Uh, my agent, Gideon Cohn, uh, set me up an opportunity to, to do some work at ESPN that spring. Just so happened, uh, it was great timing. And when uh, when I got back from that, I got let go. And uh, I didn't think I'd be doing this for the last 12 years. It's my 12th year at ESPN. I thought I'd get back in coaching. I've had opportunities, um, a pretty significant amount of opportunities. None of them have been better than maybe what I'm doing now in terms of balance and quality of life. But I, you know, you miss coaching. There's no doubt about it. You miss yeah. coaching. You miss impacting someone's life. But I've been so fortunate. The greatest thing about ESPN and people don't understand is the people you work with. The producers, the directors, the researchers, the camera people, all they want you to do is have a good show. Like it's, you know, I tell people it's the greatest team I've ever been part of because literally everyone is so selfless. What we do is easy. The camera goes on, we're talking ball. I mean, I've, I've talked about it my whole life. Yeah. The people that make it happen are the people, the special people. Uh, and that's what makes ESPN so great is this, this and I'm, I don't want to call them support step, but everyone around the production, those people are so good and work so hard and care so much. Uh, and, and that's what's made it really special for me. 
just that, that's nice words to hear, especially uh, they've been getting a lot of negative press lately. So as far as, you know, being in the, about layoffs and everything else, but just what teams do you like? Just talk about basketball. Like what teams do you like what they see now early on? I know it's early. Things can change. But what teams do you like and what teams, uh, you know, you could kind of see making a run, you know, come March? Yeah, I think this game, Purdue-Arizona this weekend is unbelievable. And that's just a big – That those are the two best teams in the country along with UConn right now. Um, you know, Purdue, Zach Eady is the real deal. Everyone talks about Fairleigh Dickinson, St. Pete. But, uh, you know, they, they literally – I think they have like 39 consecutive non-conference wins. They haven't lost a non-conference game in years. They've, they've won 15 or 16 consecutive non-conference games against Power 6 schools and Gonzaga. And if you look at the who's who's they've beaten this year, whether it's Alabama, whether it's Marquette, whether it's Tennessee, whether it's Xavier, whether it's Alabama the other day, I mean, they played an incredible schedule. Uh, Arizona plays with – I studied Arizona a bunch this morning. They play with unbelievable force and speed offensively and defensively. They're as good a deep at the perimeter defensive team as I've seen in a long time. You know, they got Omar Ballo, who obviously is a big front court player, Keisha Johnson – Transfer center states helped them a great deal, giving them a little toughness. UConn, even though they lost Hawkins and Jackson, uh, Dan Hurley's just a phenomenal, phenomenal coach. And they've got a freshman, Stephen Castle, obviously not been clinging. He's now a more focal point, but he's been banged up and hurt. Alex Caravan is a great complimentary yeah. guy that's played at a high, high level. And Tristan Newton's played as good as anybody in the country. And Johnson's playing well, too, the, the backup. The, yeah, Samson's playing and, really, really well. And, and so, you know, because Donovan got injured, it gave Samson opportunities to to play. Marquette is the speed they play with. Uh, the backcourt with Kolick and, and Jones is really, really dynamic. Uh, uh, Oso Daro is a, a tough, tough, tough matchup. Uh, they're very, very good. Um, so, I mean, the SEC across the board, top to bottom, is, is absolutely terrific. Uh, in fact, I think they have more – uh, more wins, more more quad one and quad two wins, or high major wins than anyone in the preseason. But it, the 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 SEC is really really deep, really deep. And Kentucky now they're getting Aaron Bradshaw back, and they're gonna they might even get Agana back this ne- this next week. You know, with the, the with the depth in their backcourt and their shot making, Kentucky's gonna be good. Tennessee is good. That whole conference, top to bottom. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, and, and established coaches, you got you know, you got a, uh, you know, Cal at, uh, at Kentucky and the Tennessee coach. I know he's Barnes. Uh, Barnes. I mean, he. I mean, Chris he's, Beard, he's a journey. Chris Beard at Ole Miss. Chris so, at Mississippi so, State. I mean, you got you got some really really good coaching in that conference too. So, yeah, but anyway, there's uh, a lot of good teams. There, there. I'm not sure how many great teams there are right now. I look at Arizona. Purdue and UConn as as the best teams with with probably Marquette right on that cusp. Creighton's in that conversation, so it's three from the Big East, which is you know really kind of interesting to say the least. Um, you know the Big Ten has not had a as good a, a non conference with Michigan State struggling a little bit right now. Iowa struggling a little bit right now. Northwestern's actually a lot better than people think. They got a terrific backcourt. Uh, Big 12, Baylor is maybe has one of the best backcourts in the country. And Houston's a yeah. two-way backcourt, which is really good. Kansas, they have four stars as good as anyone. They, they would probably be right in that conversation with UConn and, 
and Purdue. So uh, we've got good teams. It's we're we're going to have a great year college basketball this year. Uh, I'll just leave you with this. As we leave a little. Uh, like, what would you say Alabama's legacy is on on the game of basketball? And and thanks for your time, Coach. I know you've been. I mean, we're going back and forth just to kind of get this interview. So I appreciate your time. You know, and uh, and not not Coach only today. Legacy. Yeah. Uh, Coach Lowe was one of the architects of man to man defense. Uh, coach Lowe was a coach's coach. He coached coaches. Coach Lowe's teachings uh, are represented all throughout the game of college basketball, whether it's ball you man, whether it's being in the stance, whether it's jump the ball front to cutter, whether it's zigzag, whether it's uh, helping recover, whether it's whether it's shrinking down on the post. Uh, his teachings, uh, basically his philosophies and his his concepts permeate throughout all of college basketball from the NBA on down to grade school basketball. Uh, and I would think that that's, you know, I mean, he coached UB Brown in high school. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, so like, even though he's passed, uh, his philosophy and his teachings will live on forever because they're the foundation of anything you want to do so in terms of playing solid man-to-man -man defense. Listen, Coach, thanks for your time. Happy holidays to your family. Congratulations on the fourth grandchild. Thank you for uh, being considerate, you know, when we're going back and forth. Oh, no problem. Interview. My pleasure. I, I appreciate it. And then, uh, you know, I guess we could find you on Seth on Hoops. You always put these uh, on X. I always put these, uh, you know, game things on, which are always – which, yeah. as a coach, you could see different things. So, Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, Seth on hoops and uh, tune us in. We got a great year of college basketball. We got some great games coming up this weekend and uh, throughout the season. It's gonna be a fun, a fun season of college basketball. All right, thanks for the time, coach. I appreciate, All right, man. It. appreciate it. Man. Thank, All right, stay well. Thanks for uh, Coach Greenberg for his time. I was going back and forth with him uh, to get get this interview. He was uh, gracious enough to get this interview during the holidays. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Hope everybody's going to have a safe holiday season. Congratulations on Coach with his fourth grandchild. And look for uh, Seth Greenberg on ESPN. Also follow him on X on Seth on Hoops. He puts out some really good stuff, really great guests. Please like, subscribe, share this episode. Check out former uh, episodes on the Chop Sports Network. Also, uh, follow me on Twitter at Whalebones, at Whalebones, uh, for me at X. It's W-H-L-A-L-E-B-O-N-Z. Thank you.